Hey, welcome to the social distancing edition of the Talking to Ourselves podcast. I'm Omid Farhang, CCO at Momentum. You know, in the two plus years since I started this show, I've kept the guest list pretty tight to marketing professionals. But if you listen to this show regularly, you know it's proven to be just as much about leadership and learning how to manage people and learning how to be a pro, just as much, if not more, than it's about marketing. And so when I got the opportunity to interview my next guest, Wes Wilcox, I couldn't resist. He is my first guest who is not in marketing. Wes Wilcox is the former general manager of the Atlanta Hawks. After three years as assistant general manager, in 2015, the Hawks promoted Wes to GM at the age of just 36, making him one of the youngest general managers in NBA history. Prior to Atlanta, Wes served in a number of front office capacities over a nearly two-decade NBA career for the Cleveland Cavaliers, New Orleans Hornets, and Miami Heat. Today, Wes serves as an analyst for NBA Network. He is the host of Deals and Dunks, the co-host of The Starting Lineup, and No Look Pass on Sirius XM. He is also a judge on the upcoming reality series, GM School, which was created by Momentum for our clients at SAP and is set to debut this summer on NBA Network. If you've ever wanted to peek behind the curtain of working at the highest levels of an NBA front office, enjoy Wes Wilcox and I talking to ourselves. So, okay. here's the first thing I wanted to ask yep. you. So, um, you were just talking about the transition to media. Was the hardest thing about the transition from a front office to the media that um, you've worked so hard to learn just how evasive to be with people without seeming inauthentic? And all of a sudden, now the job is to, like, open up and give people a peek behind the curtain when you're an analyst on the radio or on television. Was that like a weird transition? It's like, okay, like let it go, let your shoulders relax a little bit. You can be more honest, you can be more forthcoming. Well, it's interesting. You wouldn't say more honest and you wouldn't say more honest because in the job you're trying to be honest. Um, Even that sounds terrible, you know? Um, But in the job, you need to be honest. There are just things you can't share, of course. Uh, the most the most challenging compo- component of media is is one. H- how do you just do it well? Like, how are you efficient in what you're communicating? Um, how are you clear in what you're communicating? And then the the other part is how are you like managing your relationships across the NBA? And you know, are you critical of of someone's decision making or not? And like. Because that's what you want to see from a viewer's perspective, right? You, you want to see a point of view. Um, but if you can – I've learned to just take a little bit of a step back, focus on, again, what exactly am I trying to communicate? How can I communicate that really clearly? And then present options. And then say, you know, th- this was one path, this was the other path that, you know, in this decision-making situation, may- maybe explain why someone's making a decision and then – Leave it, you know, tr- try to leave like a firm opinion out and that way you can navigate, you know, relationships while being good for TV or radio or yeah. a podcast. Yeah, it's a different skill. It's a related skill, but it's a different skill. It must give you a newfound appreciation for someone like yeah. Colin Cowherd who can just like go on by himself and talk for three straight hours. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, a couple times we've had like the radio go down mm-hmm. where the other host – you know, and on the radio, like, they call you a host. Like, in my position, they'll call me a host. I, f- I feel of myself, like, is really a co-co-host yeah. who's really, you know, relying upon um, 
the the media person, the seasoned media vet to, to lead the show. And a couple times those guys have gone down, just technology issues, and then you're out there flying solo trying to run a show. It's it's interesting. Are you properly caffeinated today? Oh, I, I'm always properly caffeinated. Can we just start with? Can you just tell the people what your standard Starbucks order is? <laughs> Uh, grande five shot Americano with room light half and half, um, one Splenda. And on a typical day, I'll have two of those by 10 a.m. Yeah. So this actually isn't a podcast. Your wife contacted me. This is a caffeine <laughs> intervention. That is an appalling amount of caffeine to have in a day. Is it though? I, I, I 10 I, shots by 10 a.m. Is that, is that, I mean, look, there's it a works little for you. water in half and half in there. Yeah. Um, the, uh, I will say a couple times I've walked into Starbucks, like for a third or fourth time in the same day, and I have had like the people who work there who you, you know, you build a relationship with. A couple times they've been like, you know, this might not be healthy. Yeah. <laughs> and when the barista Whenever your quote unquote dealer, your barista, is telling you you might want to slow down, you, I, I have walked out of the store thinking to myself like, hmm, yeah, may, maybe I should try to dial it back. Wes Wilcox, where are you from and what did your parents do? From La Habra, California, and uh, my parents were high school teachers. What your what what they teach? My dad taught woodshop for the majority of what I remember is my youth. Yeah. I think he taught a bunch of other um, disciplines, but he's really a woodshop teacher. Uh, and my mom was a dance teacher, um, which was like in the PE department. Um, but I just my youth, I remember going to my mom's kind of dance shows and going to my dad's woodshop. What did 12-year-old Wes want to be when he grew up? A basketball coach. A basketball coach. A basketball coach, okay. yeah. I never wanted to be a front office guy. Uh, I wanted to be a basketball coach. Um, and I actually remember being in my mom's my, – my mom did you know, teach some art just like my dad did as well. Um, and I remember sitting in my mom's classroom at a young age, probably much younger than 12, drawing on the, the chalkboard at the time, drawing, trying to draw basketball plays. Who was the coach you idolized? At that point, I don't think there was like a specific coach that I looked up to and I said, man, that's that's the guy. I, you know, no one in my family is in basketball. No one like no one's ever no one that I know of played basketball. Um, I don't even know like how it stuck, uh, but it stuck from a super very, very early age. And um, I, I watched Hoosiers last night with my kids for the first time. <laughs> We have a ten-year-old and seven-year-old twins, and my wife. Uh, we've, you know, with this coronavirus thing, we've all been spending great family time together. And because school is homeschool, we can start essentially whenever you want, right? Yeah. So we've been watching, like probably everybody in America, watching home movies. And I definitely watched Hoosiers more than any movie uh, in my in my life, and. That movie, I believe, was made in 1986, so I would have been seven years old at the time. I know I watched it pretty early on, and it's interesting because I could almost get emotional. I was almost getting emotional watching the movie last night with my kids because it was a powerful influence, uh, and it's still a great, great movie. My boys were up jumping last night screaming, and it was great to watch it with them. To get to watch it through their eyes for the first time. Now, my brother was just trying to get me to watch the new Ben Affleck basketball movie, and I was like, why would I watch that when I could just watch Hoosiers? <laughs> yeah. I don't need that movie. No, for sure. You got Yeah, I, I feel like as a basketball community, we all have to contribute to the basketball world in whatever way, so we'll probably go see it. But it, it was amazing how, how still to this day, 
how powerful a movie like Hoosier is. Hoosiers is, you know, especially because what it meant to you as a young kid. What was your role on the 1997 state champion St. Paul Swordsman? Wow, that's pretty good. I, do, I have a research team. That's pretty good research. Yeah. Um, I was, I was uh, you know, I was a member of that team. We were a senior-laden group. Um, you know, I was the starting shooting guard. Uh, it was a fu- it was a fun time. It Give was, me a comp, like oh, a basketball comp. Yeah. Oh man, gotta be like some version a cross between Matthew Dellavedova and JJ Redick. Um, and I I must say, like I use comp, like we have to scale that all the way back to the high school level. <laughs> like not, I I see the whole world through NBA player comps. Uh, so I. I Cannot, <laughs> I, please don't misinterpret that. No, to think just the that role on the like, team, the yes. role on the team, not the, the skill the, level. Yeah, that's not level of play, yeah. but like, yeah, like tough, like physical, oh, probably overly aggressive shooter. Slapping the slapping the ground when you're playing defense a lot. Yeah, well, when you can't actually move and you aren't actually athletic and you don't have size, but you have a little bit of toughness, skill, and um, you know, I, I hope a level of basketball IQ then. Then you can find a way to help your team. Yeah. I was in high school. I was like Sabonis, but not not like peak European Sabonis. It was like Sabonis in the later years, or flat footed, maybe a cigarette at halftime, <laughs> uh, pass first. I also my, I wore number fifty four because my this my one of my closest friends was a senior and I was a freshman, and he he ended up going to Michigan. He was obsessed with Michigan, oh, and wow. that was the year that Robert Trailer got to Michigan. Oh yeah, who you later oh, ha- yeah. had a, had a brush with. Um, yes. we'll get to that. And so he wore fifty four in honor of Robert Trailer, and then I saw my game was a little Robert Trailer as well. Oh, that's that's pretty good comp. So were you a freshman on the varsity team? It was a very small school. Well, that's so still yes. pretty. That's still pretty good. Yeah, yeah, that's still pretty good. Uh, you had an early brush with John Wooden that seemed to sort of set your trajectory a little bit. So I went to I, I met with John Wooden in his condominium in L.A. I sat with him and um, I was one of the things I so really I, I didn't. This is really unexpected that you, you were going to do this much research. Yeah. Um, uh, I should have expected it, but. Um, what what I really did to get started was try to find like-minded people at a very young age. And so that led me to basketball camps. My freshman year in college, I started working basketball camps. And then then Steve Lavin was at UCLA at the time. And I was like, you know what? If Steve Lavin can start a basketball camp in Central California, why can't I start a basketball camp in Southern California? And so that's what I did. Right. And I did that with a family friend, Scott Chenarians, Kelly Chenarian were the two kids that I went to school with at St. Paul High School. And their father, Sam Chenarian, has just been a family friend and... Uh, so we started this basketball camp with the Chenarian family. We did it for a number of years and, and Sam was, uh, the father was super, uh, aggressive and creative and reached out to John Wooden on our behalf. And he and I went and go sat with him at his house. How old were you? Oh man, I must've been a sophomore in college. My mom actually sent me the picture, uh, like this week of me when John Wooden in his condo. Um, it's interesting timing. Um, and John Wooden was just so open, so welcoming. He would say yes to anybody. I'll never forget. He was like reading me poetry in his wow. in his. You're just some weird kid who shows to his house. Yeah, very weird kid uh, with this weird guy who like reached out to him on our behalf, and he said yes and came in, and he was awesome. And um, I did hear him speak at a coach's clinic at UCLA. I believe that was during my freshman year in college. It was yeah, it was definitely my freshman year in college. 
it was uh, Steve Lavin was the coach at UCLA, uh, and uh, Gene Cady spoke at that clinic. Um, I believe Coach Wooden spoke at that clinic as well. It, it was a uh, yeah. No, he was he was very influential because he was you know he was our coach K yeah. at the time. As you enter college, you seem pretty focused then on a career of some capacity in basketball. You don't totally know what. Did you did you feel any external pressure from any family members to pick a safer route? No, I don't. First of all, my family didn't know what that meant, like right. to be in basketball. And I, the only thing I would kind of like maybe nudge you on is I was laser focused on being a basketball coach and a college basketball coach. That's what I thought I wanted to be. Um, and so my entire world was learning basketball. Like I just wanted to learn the game. I wanted to learn – you know, what every screen was. I wanted to learn every defense. Um, and so h- how do you gain that knowledge? Well, you got to gain access to the smart people who are around that space. And how do you eventually then want to work in the space? Then you got to find, you know, people who are in the space. And that's where it was like, you know, I'll never forget going to Stanford basketball camp and working many, many Stanford basketball camps when Mike Montgomery was the coach. And um, the University of Utah, Rick Majerus was the coach. He was like, I'll, I'll, that was the first time in my life I stood on the floor and I realized how little I knew about basketball, watching him teach, listening to him teach. Um, you know, you, you're in it, you're, you're confident, but you're like, have a thirst for knowledge. And so you quickly like feel like you're gaining knowledge and then you go stand next to somebody like that or watch them coach and you're like oh my gosh I know nothing and um but great relationships to this day came out of all those camps it's such a grind too I mean at that point you were you were prepared to commit yourself to the idea of like I'm gonna be in gyms all day and all night yeah I mean I did a lot of basketball camps and certainly nothing like you but for most of us it's just like it's not glamorous you're filling water jugs and you're like you know it's just you're getting courts prepared and you're sweeping oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you don't get to do the fun stuff without getting to do a lot of the manual labor stuff, especially at 20 years old. Yeah, but the so first of all, you, there are there are there are kids in college right now dying to work basketball camps, dying to get into this space um, who are incredibly excited to, to, you know, sweep the floor and pick up cups. And I'll never forget my uncle who um, is still in Southern California. He would he would always tell me he's like listen if you're gonna pick up cups and you're gonna sweep the floor just be the best there is at picking up cups and sweeping the floor, and he was right on and I loved that time. Uh, I still look very fondly on those times. Um, I can't tell you the number of relationships that have come out of those camps over the years, um, and I mean like very close to this day. Uh, some of the most foundational relationships that you've built in the in the sport in the industry come out of those basketball camps, but. I would say I, I loved it because it gave you opportunity to see some of the best in the game interact and work. Right. And, you know, being able to be in the gym when Mike Montgomery had Stanford rolling and going to the Final Four, or Rick Majerus at Utah rolling, going to the Final Four, or, you know, Steve Lavin, one of the youngest coaches and one of the biggest jobs at UCLA at the time, um, you know, getting having a chance to to see those guys work and what was it, you know, versus all you knew about it was listening to the radio Chick Hearn in Southern California call Laker games or maybe catch a game on TV. Um, it was pretty cool to be in the space. Yeah. Well, we're about the same age. And I mean, back then there wasn't a lot of precedent for getting those jobs without having 
establish yourself at least as a pretty successful player at the college level? Did you feel like you had to sort of overcompensate? Oh, for sure. Be, be the guy who picks up cups with great pride oh, and integrity sure. because this is your only route in. Like, did you see it that way then, or or was it sort of subconscious? Oh no, for sure. Like. I, I knew that I had to find a way to distinguish, right, and uh, differentiate. Yeah. But um, the other side of that, though, you got to be careful. And it's, it's in some ways, has hurt me in my career because when you go so hard and you work so hard to be prepared, you know, that can at times, you know, be, be something that others don't appreciate as much as you appreciate because you care so much about it. And, it, you know, I it's been a that that alone has been a great has something that I've struggled with throughout my career. It's a great strength, but on the other hand, it's something you have to learn how to manage because you got to understand where you fit in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, you said you were laser focused. Was there someone who came into your life in that period of your sort of early to mid twenties that had the credibility and pumped you with confidence that sort of corroborated, like, yes, you can have a special career in this business. Was Donnie, there a coach? Or? Yeah, Donnie Daniels um, was an assistant coach at the University of Utah, uh, and he was Rick Majerus's lead assistant, I believe, at the time. And uh, he got the job at Cal State Fullerton. And I, so I transferred to a bunch of schools. I kept moving. And the only time my parents were, like, throttled me back was when I was transferring for the fourth time in four years, or I guess it would be the third time in fourth year, so my fourth school. And they were like you know, you probably need to just settle down and get a degree. And I, I was I like completely ignored him. I was like, I, I appreciate that, but I'm going to do this again. And this transfer was going from Cal State or Cal Poly Pomona to Cal State Fullerton. And the reason I was transferring is because Donnie Daniels had gotten the Cal State Fullerton head coaching job. He had played at Cal State Fullerton back in the day um, and had gone from the University of Utah's lead assistant to Cal State Fullerton. And, the fir- and I was just fortunate to have worked those basketball camps and in those basketball camps, I got to watch Coach Daniels as an assistant coach for, I think it was two summers. And then he gets the job at Cal State Fullerton, which is five miles from my house. And I, like, knock on the door the first week. There's, like, no one in the office. And I'm like, hey, Coach, I want to work for you. And he's like, uh, okay. He's like, I'll never forget. He's like, uh, do you, so what's your story? And I'm like, well, I'm a student. And he's like, well, how can you work for me if you're a student? I am said, I'll transfer. And so I transferred there. And, you were like, um, well, 1997, St. Paul State Champs. <laughs> Obviously, you know that. <laughs> I did not lead with that. Um, but uh, so anyways, but then working with him was incredible. And he's been he – was, he was probably the first person that really, like, blew a great deal of wind in my sails. There was an assistant coach at Purdue, Jim Thrash, at the time, who, who really was a great mentor as well, who, who, you know, I latched onto when I was at Purdue for my sophomore year that really blew wind in my sails as well. Yeah. Um, but probably Jim Thrash and Donnie Daniels, two great basketball people, both retired now. Yeah. Uh, so you're a senior at Fullerton. Uh, you talked about how you were laser focused on a on a sort of a college career or college path. Um, and then you get your foot in the door with the Miami Heat. Is this a lark or is it through someone you know? Yeah. Through what's, yeah. Stanford basketball camp. Yeah. Um, one of the guys who worked Stanford basketball camp had taken a job at as an intern in the video room in Miami and uh, sent out an email to three or four people. Um, he actually didn't have my email. I was not on the email, but he had sent it to three or four friends who all hit me at the exact – on the same day. I'll never forget getting phone calls. Hey, you know, the guy's name was Andrew Sloan. He, he said, uh, hey, Andrew sent this email. I can't do it, but I think you'd have interest. And I got like three phone calls the same day. And again, there's times in your life where like – 
you should listen to what's going on, even though you didn't expect it or you don't want to do it. And even though I wanted to be a college basketball coach and this was the NBA, Pat Riley was the coach at the time. And I was, you know, the Laker connection growing up in LA, being a huge Laker fan. I thought it was worth sending a resume in. And then it ended up working out. Does Pat Riley ostensibly become your boss or, or are you five steps away when you show up in Miami to take that job? I, I guess Pat Riley would be the boss. I <laughs> This is 2001 <laughs> or 2002, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I, I – no. I, <laughs> he was so many steps away. Right. Um, my, my direct bosses at the time were actually Travis Schlink. He's the general manager here in Atlanta. He was the video coordinator. Um, and then really Eric Spolstra was like I think the fourth assistant coach at the time. I remember sometimes he traveled. Sometimes he didn't travel. He was like behind the bench. Um and then uh, Jordan Cohn, who's now a scout for the Philadelphia 76ers, was like the director of information and technology or something like that. Um, so I would say those were like my, my three direct bosses. But, uh, and, and that's how I saw the job is through the lens of Travis, Jordan, and ultimately Spo. What does an intern in the scouting department of an NBA team do? Yeah, so this was video. So we were on videotapes at the time, just moving into DVDs. The jobs are very different now. Um, but it was just, you know, all sorts of recording games and getting organized and helping the staff prepare for, uh, you know, helping Travis have the, informa- you know, the video into the editing system. It's it's very different than it is. Now we just download stuff. It's already chopped up and you're at labeling and getting stuff to your coaches and getting the, you know, game prep tapes. Um, the audio video component is a strange skill. Did you learn that oh, yeah. through, through college? Like, no. Okay. No, no, no. You, you just, just figure it out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is just like... You know, this is like, you know, use use your logic, right. you know, and, and figure out how it all fits together and make sure it works. And w- whatever you don't know technically, you've got to be able to make up in effort. <laughs> right. You're not traveling as an intern at that oh, point, no, right? Oh, no, yeah. no, 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 no. I mean, you're like stocking Gatorade. It was very com- – I'm very comfortable with like, you know, getting water where it needs to go, working <laughs> a floor, having a towel. It felt a lot like basketball camp. Didn't go to practice very often in that setting. Um, mostly in the video room, but occasionally we're on practice with the towel, working the floor, you know, filling up water. I'm telling you, it's very much like, you know, being a camp coach. It's a very strange team. I looked at the roster. It's So it's Tim Hardaway and Alonzo Mourning, Brian Grant, yeah. Eddie Jones, one of my favorite underrated Lakers, Eddie House, Eddie House. who I saw score yeah, 62 sure. points against Cal when he was at ASU. I saw him have a big game against, was it? No, Eddie House reminded me a lot of Jody Meeks. Jody Meeks. Who I saw have a huge game against Tennessee. And Both I made scoring that machines in college. Yeah, undersized yeah. shooting guards. Yeah. AC Green, Anthony Mason, Cedric Sabalos, Dan Marley, and then another scoring machine in college, Don McLean. What a fucking weird team that is. <laughs> <laughs> no, that team um, did not make the playoffs uh, and then led to the draft of the two Butlers, the Karan Butler and uh, Rasul Butler. Um, that next year in the draft, the 2002 draft. Um, it was a different team. But again, I was so disconnected from the actual team. Right. Like I remember just doing the offensive rebounding. You know, there, there was a every game, Coach Riley wanted to know, you know, how many guys went to the offensive glass, how many guys went to the defensive glass, and you would just chart it every game. And that was my job game night. So right. I was almost so disconnected from did we win or lose and did the job, you know, did I get the, you know, the uh, the proper edit done. Uh, yeah. Whatever but, you did, whatever you did, you did enough the following year to get the job as video coordinator for the New Orleans Hornets. 
So you've been in Miami for one year. Now you're in New Orleans the next year. You're about, you're used to bouncing around a little bit, so you're oh, comfortable yeah, yeah, with yeah. that. Um, what are the, the qualities that an NBA franchise is looking for in a video coordinator versus the internship piece? Is it, is it still that that like audio video knowledge, or now are you starting to delve a little bit more into analysis? Spo, uh, Travis, and uh, Jordan, at, you know, at Miami helped open the door to the job in, in New Orleans. And that was a great opportunity because I got to work for the first time really closely with a coaching staff, which was Paul Silas, yeah, who is just a great, great person. I mean, an incredible person and uh, was probably, you know, one of the most influential people for sure in my basketball career um, just because he was, I mean, we had a small staff and, you know, with a small staff creates great opportunity typically. Yeah. And so at the end of, uh, as I entered the advertising industry, I was in it at the tail end of an era when there was great pride in how late you stayed at work. You know, it was oh, like, if you don't sure. show up Saturday, don't bother showing up on Sunday. And yeah. well, this place is a sweatshop. And that was said with oh, great yeah, regard. Yeah, sure. And those times have changed. It's not that people don't still work really late, yeah. but it's not it's not um, treated with the same level of pride. And as you talk about Eric Spolstra and Lawrence Franks, like these are the legendary grinders. Did you feel like... During that era, it was like one, it's like the great one of the best things you can do is just never leave and sleep there and and be there till three o'clock in the morning every day. For sure, yeah. for sure. You know, I I thought I worked hard at Cal State Fullerton <laughs> and you know through college, and I probably did. Um, I remember in the interview with Spo, I said something where I was like, "No one will ever work harder than me," and it was so arrogant at the time, and I didn't realize it. I have since interviewed a bunch of young people for jobs who have said the same thing to me. You know, oh, no one will ever work harder than me. And I'll never forget Spo saying, like, after the fact, he said, you know, hey, when you say that, you understand that, like, y- you are insulting the rest of us. And you might be showing a little bit of na- naivete, like, what it is to, to to work hard. Right. Right? It's just different. And I've shared that message to a lot of young people who have said the same thing, and hopefully in a way that helped. I know what Spo said to me really helped me. Um but it's so interesting because you're right. Like the basketball world was grind. It still is grind, like incredibly hard work. And especially when you eventually move to the front office, the work is very different. Um, you know, in, in in the video and really the advanced scouting world, um, I felt like it was like a, like a technical job. It was a science. Like there was 50 play calls or there was 100 play calls. I can know all 100 plays, right? Like I can tell you there's there's a score there's essentially a score a scorecard um and i can get 100 out of 100 right or i can get 98 out of 100 right or i can have answers to 90 of the 100 questions and i think hard work like grinding that that can lead to success in that space when you move into like the the world of managing people like that doesn't work right <laughs> when you you know move into the world of big picture decision making you got to be careful you know, with that space. And then just in general, one of the things you learn over time is, especially when you're working with like a larger organization or in a larger job, like that incredible work rate um, can create almost a level of entitlement and selfishness. Like you've earned the right to, you know, think a certain way or act a certain way. Um, And it can create a great deal of pressure on your staff or those working around you. Like an incredible amount of pressure because even though you may not say get in at 8 o'clock in the morning or get in at 7 or get in before me, if you get in at 6.30 
and you're an hour and a half there before everyone else, like your staff feels that. Sure. Your staff knows that. And I've lived that, you know, in, in you know, high level jobs in the NBA. I understand that that can be damaging. And, and as a leader in that space, you need to be active and engaged with your staff and say, hey, look, I'm going to be in at 6 a.m. because that works for me and my schedule. But you cannot be in you know, by a certain time. Otherwise, they're just going to try to beat you in. And it's that can create like uh, an environment that is less than ideal. You just reminded me when I was at CAA, Mike Krzyzewski was a client. We got basically a 45 minute meeting with him uh, and his agent brought me out. We got to watch a game the night before and the plan was to meet with Coach K at 9 a.m. the next day to share some ideas with him. Um, And he was supposedly excited and very open to this. And so we go to the game the night before. It ends up being the biggest comeback in Duke history. They're down 25 at halftime to NC State, wow. and they storm back. They win the game. Super emotional. So we we have this meeting the next day, and when they're losing to NC State at home, I'm like, this meeting's getting canceled for sure. So I was happy to see them storm back. And as we go in, you know, Coach's assistant goes, you know, just keep things kind of simple right now. Coach uh, – Coach had a long night, so just, you know, he's he's always open when he has meetings. He's very professional, but just, you know, don't don't come in a little too hot. I was like, well, what's he coming from? He's like, well, you know, the game ended at 10 p.m., and then he did a press conference till 11, took a shower, and then he um, and then he studied tape from midnight to 6, uh, and then he slept for two hours. And, you know, he just comes in. He looks like hell. He's got a 60-ounce Diet Coke. And I'm just thinking to myself, if he's up from midnight to 6 – yeah. Like what, you know, then that means it's, that's not beneath anybody on campus if it's not beneath him. No, for sure. And, you know, that's great for, I mean, so many of us look up to that and say like, this is, this is the model of success, right? right? So I have to be some version of that. Um, I might, my, I'd be really interested to see how that, you know, what, what it was like when he was coach K, but before coach K, right. You know, cause that's the transition that everybody has to make is, as a young up and coming like person in any field, right? Like how you work is going to give you great opportunity and move you forward. It's probably a big part of the reason why he got to be, you know, the head coach at Duke. Um, But I like, I do know the other side of that, right? As, as you, as you age, these become folklore you know, this is something that you're sharing me is like this incredible model, but in between there, you got to be careful. Because for all of us who aren't Coach K, <laughs> you know, because I, I, am, I, I just guess uh, the early years of working for Coach K were probably hard at Duke because he drove so hard. Yeah. Um, it's what makes him great. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, he, before he was Coach K, he, you, know, he, you get there by being a grinder. And then some people, by the way, your life changes. I was a grinder in my industry, yeah. hardcore in my 20s. I didn't have a lot else going on. For I sure. liked being at work all night. For sure. I liked being at work on the weekends. It's where yeah, my people were. No there was free food there. And then your life starts to change and you, you know, maybe you get married, maybe you have a family and your priorities change a little bit, but it doesn't mean you don't want to still be good at your job. Oh, for sure. And so everyone's no, got to figure right. out how to strike that balance. And yeah. some guys like Coach K is like, you, you know, I can't speak to his personal life, but some people just can never stop working the way they worked when they were 25. No, I mean, he's... I mean, there's a reason he's won a million games or whatever it is, and he's one of the great coaches of all time, and that's probably the foundation. But, you know, you're so right because there's periods in our life when it changes. Like, you know, he's a grandfather, I would imagine, at that time, right? His kids are grown, and, you know, you see this with with staff members. You know, if if they don't have a family, they work a certain way. If they have a family, they work a certain way. If their kids are young, 
Like one of the great challenges, I, I have a number of very close people that I've worked with who are like right at that point, probably 10 years behind us where they're just starting to have kids or they have one or two year olds. And it's like, oh my gosh, how are you going to manage? You have no idea how much your life has changed. Yeah. You know, you're in a big job and you got young kids and you want to talk about stress and pressure. Like dads who are listening, no. Like that period of time when your kids are, you know, super young. And this is one of the great challenges, right? Like how are you in a big job or, in a, you know, or a pa- you're incredibly passionate and driven about your career. How do you be present while being present? You know, because very many times we, as in my job, like looking back over the last 10 years, I would say I was, I did a terrible job of being present with my family and with my kids when I was in their space. Right. I might've been there, but I wasn't actively engaged with them. It's something that I will do differently going forward. Um, but when you're present, you got to be present. And there's been too many times because you're in that space with your family, with your kids, where you might be present, but you aren't present. You're thinking of DeMar Carroll. Yeah, you're on, you're on, your, you're on your phone. <laughs> yeah. You're thinking about a negotiation, your phone call. And that's why I think I, – look, I, we have one at our house. I think I've only used it for podcasts, interestingly enough. But I really believe like everybody in a big job should have a, a, a landline at their house. And you need to tell your executive staff or, you know, the, your critical staff, your boss, whoever it is you're working with that, listen, I'm going to turn my phone off from these hours. I want you to know that. But my landline's there. If you need me because it's critical, call the landline. Right. And you better be able to answer it. Right. And they'll treat that more more sacred than they'll just hit you up on text or call your phone. But, you know. And as as the boss, yeah. when you're the boss, you got to be careful with that te- with that phone. Right. I'm, and I have made this mistake, too, a million times. When you're sitting there watching a game at 9 o'clock at night, you know, and you're firing off text messages to your staff or your scouts or your whatever it is. Just understand those text messages are invasive to their family right. and their time. And you may not think you're just like engaging with your staff member. Or you can't turn it off. But on the other side of that text is a wife or a girlfriend or a kid that, you know, you're making it more difficult for them to be present when they're present. And you just got to be careful, man. These phones are dangerous. Yeah. Uh, a big part of success in any career is talent and persistence and perseverance. But the other part of it is we all need a little bit of luck. Yeah. So you get to the Cleveland Cavaliers in 2003. Yeah. Uh, and you're there for several years and hold a number of jobs. But just for context first, you arrive in Cleveland in 2003. Who else arrives in Cleveland in 2003? <laughs> the Cavs drafted LeBron in 2003. That's helpful. That's helpful. Yes. Um, we were incredibly fortunate at that time. Paul Silas had gone from New Orleans to Cleveland in '03. Um, he was gracious enough to take me as his advanced scout at that point. Um, and uh, he took a, two other coaches with him as well. Uh, Steven Silas, his son, who's now currently an assistant with the Dallas Mavericks and going to be a head coach in the NBA, one of the great, great people in the profession. Um, and... Uh, it was a great opportunity to, yeah. to, to be there, you know, ground zero to watch one of the greatest players in the history of the game, you know, begin his NBA career. And Danny Ferry is the is the GM at the time? Not yet. No, Jim Paxson was the GM in 2003. Right. Right. Dan Gilbert then bought the team in the middle of the second year. Gordon Gund was the owner. Um, I'll never forget that. Like, out of the blue, none of us knew it was coming. Um, and Dan buys the team. 
midway through our second year, we were actually playing really well at the time. I, as I remember, it might not be 100% accurate, but we were 10 games over 500 when it got announced that Dan bought the team. We lost the next six games, and they fired Coach Silas. <laughs> and I went from advanced guy to assistant coach, and Brendan Malone, who was an assistant coach at the time, went from assistant coach to head coach, and we tried to get the team in the playoffs, and we crashed and burned and did not make the playoffs. Um, we continued our stumble at the very end of the season, and and then that offseason, it was the summer of 2005, that's when Danny Ferry came in as the general manager and Mike Brown as the head coach. Right. And you had, yeah, you, you must have held four or five positions in Cleveland, right? Yeah, a bunch of jobs. I started as advance scout um, and then eventually, you know, did that stint of assistant coach and then moved back to advance. And then um, I kept getting nudges to move into the front office. Um, I never wanted to be a front office guy. Um but multiple people along the way. So, I, you know, when you're able to zoom back and look at your career, just like I wanted to be a college coach and the NBA opportunity happened unexpectedly, um, it was very much the same way. That a number of people in different walks in the NBA said that, you know, you should be a front office guy, you should be a front office guy. I don't even know what a front office guy did. Right. I, you know, one of my favorite lines is like, I, I didn't know what a cap hold was. In, in front office talk, like a cap hold is like a very simple um, uh you know, fundamental to understand, or I didn't know where bird rights were, which are pretty simple things to understand. And, um, but eventually, you know, a, a, I was actually offered a job in the front office. I turned it down the first time to stay on the coaching side because I wanted to coach. And then the second year um, that I was offered a, a job again, a similar job, I, I did move into a scouting position. So that was a college and pro scout. And then I, uh, Started a couple D-League teams, which is now the NBA G-League along right. the way. And then, you know, moved up other positions throughout the front office at the time. Yeah, and then you that's culminating the in director of player personnel. Yeah. You know, one thing we talk about uh, in in marketing is, and I think it's true in any profession, is you do a good job at one level. The reward is you get promoted. The new job may not totally overlap with the skills required sure. that you that you displayed for sure in the first place. Did you find that the same was true for you? Like, if you're really great at player personnel and breaking down video footage, I mean, that feels like a pretty isolated life compared to interacting with players, interacting with coaches, for interacting sure. with college yeah. kids. Yeah. Was that was that transition difficult for you as you were sort of working up the ranks? It was most difficult at the at at, at the top. It wasn't as difficult along the way. Um, you know, one of the great parts of the growth in the front office is I started your right with player evaluation, and at the end, it, like if you were if you were to say, okay, what is the what is the lifeblood of a basketball organization? It's it's the input of players, right? However, you're bringing players into your organization, yeah. And um, so that scouting job, like evaluating a player, knowing what a player is, like knowing what makes a good player, like. I may not have been able to articulate it at the time, like what are the characteristics of players who are going to make it in the NBA or what does it mean to be a scout in the NBA? But like, though I might not have been able to articulate it, like I knew basketball because I'd worked to learn it. Like, so that part I could differentiate. Like I knew what it meant to be a competitor. I knew what it meant to, you know, have a basketball IQ. Um, I knew what it meant to to have a skill set at at a position, um, but there was a lot of learning along the way, you know, that helped me organize how you think about the job of evaluating players. Um, but then the job grows, right? Then it goes from you know evaluating a player to now you know 
what is the role of a scout and then how does a scout fit in the scouting department and what are the different departments and as a scout. And then once you kind of get to the point of understanding what it is to run a scouting department, both pro, college, and international, now you start thinking about, okay, what else are other skill sets for a front office guy? Like the cap, like we're talking about cap holds and bird rights. Like how can you learn the salary cap? And um, and then how can you manage people and how can you build a basketball team and how can you plan short-term and long-term? Like there's a lot of things in the front office um, but one of the great things for all of us is we should always have something we don't know well. You know, we, yeah. there, we should always be work doing something that we're not good at. It's humbling and it drives your education. Um, and that was just a great time because though I knew basketball, I knew what a player was. And, I, you know, I, there was a lot to learn and there was a lot to grow. And so it was a great opportunity to grow with a great group of people who, you know, created a lot of opportunity and exposure to learn the things that y- you didn't know. Yeah. Is the draft just the highlight of your year as a director of player personnel? Is that the is that the date that you have circled as like this is this is your Super Bowl basically? Yeah, it, it's a big date. The we or the way we organized it in in uh, in Cleveland is I was less draft focused, though I had draft responsibility. Trent Redden, who was a young intern at the time, is now the assistant GM of the LA Clippers. Trent really organized and managed the draft process for Chris Grant who was the assistant GM at the time, who then became the GM in Cleveland that we worked for. So really Trent was focused on the college side of things, and I kind of worked for Trent with Trent as I focused in those major conferences. I was more pro-focused, um, but ultimately you know, all those things changed. And then so when I, when I came to Atlanta in 2012, then the draft in my job as assistant GM became a huge component of the job. And um, right. you know, the draft is a huge event. Um, because you know it's your opportunity to really differentiate the organization. Um, so yes, in some cases that's like your Super Bowl. Um, it just depends on where your focus is. If it's more pro focused or if it's more draft focused. We'll come back to the draft, but um, you know you talk about the input of players ultimately to create a winning product, and so you know a front office's ability to remain stable is tied to the success or failure of players' performance. Yeah, uh, and sometimes that's in your control, and and other times it's not. So, in that context, can you just take me back to 2010 and LeBron leaving Cleveland? I mean, we all experience that as fans in different ways. He's looked back on that moment and the decision, you know, with some regret—not about the decision to leave, but about how he did it. But I'm just wondering, from a from your perspective, you know, you're watching that event unfold, and I'm curious, just through the prism of how this is affecting your career and your life in real time as you're watching this guy make this decision that has, you know, a huge ripple effect on a lot of people's lives. One of the things that people, you know, probably are not aware of in this period for the organization was the amount of change that came before this decision for LeBron. So this was 2010. We had a great run, like you said. I think this year we lost in the Eastern Conference semifinals, right? The year before it was Boston. the Eastern Conference finals yeah. to Orlando. Yeah, and then lost. Um, and then we went to the finals in 07. Um, and then – but the setup to LeBron leaving is Mike Brown no longer is the head coach. He leaves. Mike Malone's gone. Danny Ferry's gone. Lance Blanks is gone. Mike Winger's gone. Um, I'm probably missing a handful of others. And so Chris Grant is left as the GM. Trent Redden, who's, I don't even know what Trent's title was. Trent was scouting, organizing the draft. I was, I don't even know, scout, 
at that time, um, doing NBA D League stuff, like all of that had transpired. So it's literally like three or four of us in the office every day, um, led by CG. And then LeBron left in 2010. <laughs> He's the next one to go. And the biggest domino, of, co- of course. So you're going, man, am I even going to be around? Before the decision even happens, you're looking around going, all the guys I've been building with have all moved on. I'm either getting promoted or I should, I should start looking for another job. Yeah, no. Yeah. There's been a number of moments like that in, <laughs> in the NBA. Yeah, no. I'll, that was definitely one of those moments where you didn't know. CG was great, the Chris Grant. Yeah. Like he, he was my wife was working for the team as well, Cleveland at the time. So I think actually she's the reason that I hung around because everybody loved her. Right. You know, I think they appreciated my work, but <laughs> right. they they loved They're working. Like we with lose him, we lose her, and that's <laughs> that's not acceptable. No, that's right. So um but no, it was a it was a crazy time. But that's one of those times where you're like looking around like uh, how is this gonna change? And the then, next year we broke an NBA record. We lost I think twenty six consecutive games or we tied a record at the time. Uh, and you were there for that. Oh, yeah. Okay. I was there for that. And then does Danny Ferry bring you to Atlanta? Yeah, 2012. At this point now, you and Danny have been working together for close to a decade. Yeah, long time. Are, do you view him more as a mentor or more as a, a partner? Oh, mentor. Like, you know, I was distanced early on in, in Cleveland because I was there in 2003 as a, as a scout. They, they, they kept me around in 2005 when Danny and Mike, Chris, and Lance took over in Cleveland. Um, they gave me an opportunity, and but so I met Danny for the first time in 2005, and and he was the one that gave me the opportunity in the front office in 2006, and ultimately in 2007. Um, and so, I but I didn't really work that closely with him until you know more like 2008, 2009, 2010, where I started to get more day to day interaction. Um, he was always very present, but. Um, and I think it was really through my scouting reports, really just, you know, writing a scouting report, hitting send. And, you know, it's, it's another great lesson to, for all of us. How do you extrapolate, like, what you learned in time? Like, one of the loneliest jobs in the world is, is scouting because you sit there, you're watching games, you're evaluating. You, you, you know, you spend a couple hours writing, a, you know, summarizing your thoughts and hitting send. And then that email just goes off to, like, into oblivion and there's no feedback. You right. never get a – you almost never get a, hey, this is interesting or, hey, what's going on here? Or, hey, I read your thought. Why would you say this? Um, and so for all of you out there who are sending those emails and not getting in response, like, it's worth it. Keep doing it. And for all of you managers out there who are getting those emails and not responding, just, you know, know that a small little nod to – and you know what's best? It's not a thank you. It's a question about what you wrote. Right. Right, it's something. Why did you think what you think? Why did you say what you say? Help me understand what you meant, because that shows that someone's digesting your information, and ultimately, I think that's why. Is it almost like they're written so objectively that the recipient almost reads them like they're computer generated? It's like I wouldn't ask a question to a computer. A computer sent me this, but like well, your job is to have the brain of a computer and to be able to break things down objectively. Yeah. It's it's. <laughs> I, don't, I don't. It's interesting. Like. The, uh, huh. the best scouting reports are crystal clear with a point of view while presenting questions for what the evaluator doesn't know. The scouting reports you have to be careful are like the firm, this is the way it is. Right. 
Um, because one thing you learn in basketball decision-making is you're going to make a mistake even when you're 100% convicted. Um, and um, one of the other things you learn is mistakes are change over time. You know, successes turn into failures and then they turn into successes again. And failures turn into successes and then they can turn into failures again. And so just understanding why you think what you think, especially as the evaluator and especially as the decision maker, you got to understand why your people think what they think. Why does he see that player that way? That is critical to good decision making. Um, because you got, you're going to make mistakes, and when you make a mistake, you have to be able to unpack that mistake and say, look, we made that mistake for this reason. And whenever you can do that, you can sleep good at night, even on players you missed on like or misevaluated. Like I remember I under-evaluated Kevin Love. Like I over-evaluated athleticism and length, and I underestimated the value of competitiveness, intelligence, and skill. And strength, and I'll I'll never make well I'll probably make the decision uh, make the mistake again, um, but I, I I won't I remember writing an email to the staff, articulating hey look I made a mistake on Kevin Love and this is why I made a mistake on Kevin Love like I can sleep well at night knowing that I underevaluated Kevin Love because I understand why I underevaluated Kevin Love. Right. The decisions that I have a hard time wrestling with is when I can't say why did this happen. Right. Um, and as an evaluator picking players and as a decision maker making decisions, it's really valuable to understand why people think what they think and why we make decisions what we make. And that's where, that's where the engagement with a scout, the best scouts have a point of view and have you know, questions that they, have, they're, they're, they articulate what they're having a hard time evaluating. From the player standpoint, just on an emotional level, I think about it like, you know, to get into Harvard, you have to be the smartest kid within 200 miles and then you get to Harvard and you're in class and you've all you're, if if you get a classroom full of kids who are all the smartest kids within 200 miles someone's got to now be the dumbest kid in the class. Yeah. And what's true in that classroom is true on an NBA roster. Every guy on that roster was the best player within 1000 miles for most of his life. I look at the roster when you showed up to Atlanta like Lou Williams was sitting on the end of that bench. He was a younger player then, but like Lou Williams went on to be an all-star. He didn't play a lot when when you arrived. So some of it is like Kevin Love showed up in the league. He was ready to play. Uh-huh. Some of these guys show up to the league and they're 19 years old and, you know, maybe they have unbelievable tools, but they lack maturity or they lack the coaching or they just lack the experience. And you go like, this guy's going to be a really good pro in seven years. But that's not so helpful to you right now. Like, How do you manage the emotions of these guys who all have an expectation that when they show up in the league, no matter where they got drafted – I'm sure they all have the irrational belief that they're going to be all-stars. And you get to sort of watch them reckon with reality over time. Yeah, no. They, see, I just did it. I said, yeah, no. Yeah, no. S- Sirius XM, <laughs> the great Sean Butler who leads Sirius XM said, you know, you do this thing where you say you lead with yeah, no. So I, I need to not that's do that. That's your tick? Yeah, that's, no. That's one of my ticks. Um, so let's start this over. So the irrational belief um, – well, you want a player with that confidence. One of the most important traits of successful NBA players is confidence. Um, you you got to have a great work rate. You have to be really competitive. You have to have a skill that translates to being able to be successful at the NBA level. But you also have to have great confidence. And if you don't have confidence, like even though you have those other things, those other elements that you know are you know those other characteristics that 
project to be a good NBA player without confidence, it's, it's really hard to make it. But one of the things that you run into, and this takes time and experience, like we had a list of lessons learned that we would constantly be updating. Um, and, and one of those is, is situational analysis is one of the most challenging to understand. And I think about the player that you're talking about that has this great belief and you draft him and you think they're going to be good, but you already have a really good starting point guard and he's a backup point guard. You know, we all remember Kyle Lowry as a backup point guard with the Houston Rockets who was disgruntled. Yeah. You know, oh, he was tough to coach or whatever. Well, actually, I don't know that Kyle Lowry was tough to coach. He's just uber competitive in a backup role and, you know, needed his own team and right. needed that time. Very much the same way Dennis Schroeder. People thought Dennis Schroeder was was difficult and hard-headed. Now Dennis Schroeder looks like, you know, a great, great six-man candidate, great player in Oklahoma City. Yeah. Um, and so understanding, you know, but those are opportunities. Like th- that's a market opportunity for an evaluator. Um, it's a, and it's something that the best organizations really understand. Um, this is how we evaluated the player in the draft. These are the characteristics we liked about the player in the draft. He moves into this situation in the NBA, which, you know, is not allowing him to maximize or show what he can do. That's an opportunity and you got to continually knock on those, knock on those teams to try to get those players. So now as you get to the Hawks, um, and you join Danny and it's got a different culture, do you start to take on some of this responsibility of just like helping players understand their role on a team or not so much? Not, not early. Yeah. No. And I, I probably never really was in a role of, you know, mentoring players until the very end in Atlanta, um, the last couple of years. Um, and the reason is, well, one, we had two really highly capable people in Mike Budenholzer and Danny yeah. who kind of led that for us. Um, and at the end, I, you know, one of the things that happens too over, over time is you just come old. You, as you get older, the new players get younger. So when you're 35 and the new player is 20, that's a very different relationship. And so it takes a little bit of time for that space you know, to grow between you know, you and the youngest players on the team. And then when that happens, typically those young players look at you differently because you're, you know, 15 years older than they are. So it takes time to grow to that. And, um, but ultimately, yeah. And, you know, you're, you're also forced into those interactions with players when, you know, invariably you're dealing with the lives of your players and their families of their players. And you're dealing with a move, you know, for someone that maybe is around your same age, but you're helping their wife get situated. You're helping, um, like I'll never forget one one thing that we did. We did this well. There was some stuff with one of our players um, who was married with a couple young kids, and there was a couple break-ins in the neighborhood while we were on a road trip. And it's unsettling, right? Like you have a young wife with young kids, live in a nice neighborhood. There's break-ins going on, um, and we just parked. A, we hired off-duty at Atlanta police and parked them in front of the house for like three straight weeks and paid for it. And the player was like, the wife was like, I, I can't believe you guys did this. Wow. It was so simple. But like, it just gave her, we're like, look, we just want you to have peace of mind. We were like going on the West coast. It was like a 12 day trip. And we even kept the police there when, you know, the player was there, but just to create. So, so when it, those, those types of opportunities, right. When you do that, something so small that means so much, like that can help, you know, bridge and change the relationship as well. Yeah. That's powerful. You were you were in Cleveland for largely winning years, and then you go to Atlanta, which you know is winning fifty, sixty games a year. Did you feel a, a, a cultural shift from one franchise to the other? Or? 
Yeah, very different franchises. Um, but, you know, we shifted in Cleveland, too. We were fortunate in 03 when we got there because LeBron was there and the place was like, you know, yeah. it was the sold out every and, yeah. night. And then the team, you know, changes in 2010. LeBron leaves and the fans still came, um, I think largely because they had bought tickets or renewed sure. when LeBron was there. But the fans were still great. And they have been great in Cleveland through, through, through a protracted, you know, or multiple rebuilds now. Um, Atlanta, the organization, was just in a different place, like, financially we the team was in a very difficult position in terms of like cap management we ended up making a trade with joe johnson that created a great deal of financial freedom um we had a good year that first year but we were always juggling really three paths very the first couple of years in atlanta we were juggling like how can we keep it good um how can we go from good to great and then you know do we need to rebuild and and just trying to manage those three scenarios and plan to try to figure out what's the best path forward for this organization with those three scenarios, given the roster, given the age, given the timeline, given the landscape in the NBA, like, you know, it was a much more challenging time. With LeBron, it's easy because you have a clear direction, you know? When LeBron leaves, it's easy because you have a clear direction. You know, one of the foundational things you need to have success in an organization is clear roles at the top. You need to have a clear understanding of what your resources is, what are you willing to spend. You need to have a clear understanding of your goals. Okay, and then lastly, you hope you have, you know, aligned values throughout the organization. And that is essential for success anywhere. Okay, in Atlanta early on, all three, all, you know, three of those four things were pretty murky. Right. We didn't know exactly know the resources. We didn't know exactly what the goals were because we were juggling multiple strategies. We ended up making a coaching change, um, you know, which created more uncertainty, uh, the one thing we had was, I think, aligned values. We kind of knew what we wanted to be about. Yeah, it's got to be so weird to have so much invested in LeBron's success for a decade, and then all of a sudden, he is the impediment, basically blocking your path. Now that you're in Atlanta, I mean, psycho. You just talked about it a little bit, but like psychologically, how does a front office confront the reality that a team is sort of good enough to keep winning consistently? but come to terms with the fact that maybe not good enough to win at the highest level? It's a big question. It's a great question. Like what you really need is a very clear understanding of who you are. And this is why I go back to like roles, goals, resources. Like you need to understand, like the reality is our goal is going to be to try to beat that guy, LeBron. Um, We're going to try to beat the Cavs or beat Miami. Um, But the reality is we just don't have a team to do that right now and so how do you juggle that like there's a great deal of value of just knocking on the door you know over and over again and being competitive and maybe an opportunity will open up where you can you know find your way through one Um, great series one twisted ankle you just keep showing up that that was exactly right but what happens invariably in the nba and we did that this is exactly what we did in atlanta we ended up like i'll never forget the summer 13 was you know it, it was one of the most dynamic summers we ended up that was the team that ended up going to on to win 60 games that we built in 2013 that started with really the hiring of mike budenholzer but that really started with you know the trade of joe johnson which was a big trade for us that allowed us to create the exception to sign you know Kyle Corver or trade for Kyle Corver and then we re-signed Kyle Corver and then we signed Paul Millsap in 2013 and but again, none of that happens if Al Horford and Jeff Teague weren't already on the roster, and we had nothing to do with those decisions 
You know, we right. just came into Al Horford and we came in to Jeff Teague on the roster. Now we did end up matching an offer sheet and, and re-signed Jeff Teague. So there was decisions made along the way to keep that team together. But it's one of the most difficult times is like, how can you be good? We, we would call it a competitive non-contender. That's what we were. There's contenders and then there's competitive non-contenders. And one of the challenges in the NBA is ultimately if your team has success, and we faced this in 2016, if your team has success and a lot of success, then what happens is your roster likely becomes more expensive. And so now all of a sudden you have to do this cost-benefit analysis of like what is the cost of each win? Right. What are we willing to pay per win for the roster? And you know, it gets. It was just made even more complicated by the fact that the that was 2016 is when the salary cap spiked, and you know it was a really challenging time. That you know, it's it's it's. I would say, to simplify it, you can knock on the door. You can be a competitive non-contender in the NBA um, until your payroll reaches that of contender status, and then that's when there's an inequality. Right. And that that inequality typically is where organizations make big or big decisions to go a different direction. Right. You become GM in 2015, right? Yeah. So to this point, your success and Danny Ferry's success are relatively intertwined. You've been together. You've worked together for over yeah. a decade. Danny's let go with some controversy. You step into the GM role. Again, I, I, I get into like the, the – just like – I think for – when people, when the average Joe looks at professional athletes and and people who are in professional sports, we just assume like, well, when that guy travels, he must miss his wife and kids less than the rest of us. When that guy's friend gets fired, it must hurt less than the rest of us. And I actually don't know the answer to that. Maybe that is true. But I'm thinking to myself, on the one hand, you've just gotten the job that is the highest job that you can get. Only 30 people in the world at any given time can say they're an NBA GM. And on the other hand, you're watching your friend get let go. Do you just remember having like, a lot of mixed emotions at that time. Um, I've thought a lot about this and it was really, it really started the year before. Um, and it was a battleground promotion, you know, and truly a battleground. What does that mean? Like, you know, it's just, you, your leader went down and so you just had to step into the job. Right. Um, and so I stepped into the role and, the team was being sold at the same time. And that's what made it really unique. And so we just had so many things going on. I mean, there's so many things, there's so many lessons learned in that time. Um, you know, there's certainly a couple things that I feel uh, really good about, like how I managed it, how I did it, like how I worked and what I did to protect those who were still there and how I communicated what we did to the organ, you know, to the potential new organization or to the potential new ownership groups. Um, and Omid, there was plenty that I wish I could do differently. Um, it was an incredibly stressful time. And, um, you know, I feel terrible that it was this mix of like, yeah, it's a job that you I never really dreamed of being a GM, but, you, you know, I, I, I knew I had the technical skills to do the job or I felt I had the technical skills to do the job. I was not ready emotionally to do the job, certainly coming out of what we came out of and, you know, losing Danny along the way. Uh, I, I, I really wish going back, when you look back, what you do differently, I really, I really wish I didn't take the job in that circumstance. 
But big picture, look, zooming all the way back, like there was a lot that we did well and we created a lot of opportunity for a lot of young people who have gone on to have super bright careers. Um, but if I could do it again, I would not take the job. Wow. I would I not mean, take the job. I interview a lot of, of chief marketing officers and the average the average uh, lifespan of a CMO at a big company is like 14 months. Wow. I think it's like what you're saying is like it's, these jobs are almost impossible to get. And after, you know, 15, 20 years of working your way up, it's just like you stay in these roles as long as front offices allow you to stay in them because you're one of one ten thousandth of one percent yeah. of a huge pool of people who dream about getting to that yeah. spot. And you yeah. don't know how, how long you get to be there. Um, no. It's a, it's a tough it, – it, it must have been an incredibly tough decision to make. And you're – by the way, you're making it at the age of – 36 yeah. you know you're you're one of the youngest gms in the history of the sport at that point the thing that people I, i'll never forget there was a time when i was an advanced scout and there was a head coach in the nba who i had a friend who was also an advanced scout who was very close with and i got to know that head coach pretty well and i was in his office one day this is probably you know 12 years ago and sitting with an NBA head coach, right, who worked his way up for a long time, and I'm sitting there with my friend and this coach, and they just lost a tough game, and this coach is a super guy. He's currently a head coach in the NBA. He's gone on to wild, a great amount of success, and he just was shaking his head. He's like, I just can't believe this is what the job is. I can't believe it's this hard, you know, yet I've always wanted to be in this position. And that's where I say, like, I, I wish I didn't take the job because it was a great deal of, like, I wasn't pre prepared for the strain it was going to put on relationships, both existing relationships in the NBA um, and, you know, your your personal relationships at home or in your family. Um, and then just the complications of trying to navigate uh, an organization and that needed change or was going to change, invariably was going to change. The core group was aging. Right. You know, the core group was going to get expensive because this artificial salary cap spike that inflated player salaries. And, you know, we had to manage a, a payroll that probably was not going to be commiserate with keeping the whole team. And how do you do that? And, and I was just, that's the part of the job at that point that I wasn't ready for. Now I'm infinitely more prepared yeah. to be successful in that situation because I've lived these challenges. Um, but the jobs are really they're, – they're massive um, and they take a great deal of not it, – it's probably less technical skill now because you can go hire those technical traits. But really more about like big picture political understanding, you know, big picture strategy – and really knowing how to effectively, you know, build relationships with your existing staff and across the NBA. In the context of your career, in in the context of the grind, the patience, the thousands of hours in dark film rooms, uh, what advice do you give to young people who ask how to get their foot in the door with an NBA franchise and, and how to have a successful career? So... Two different questions. How do you get in the front foot in the door versus how do you have a successful career? Yeah. I hear two separate questions in that question. Um, how you get your foot in the door first, uh, there's a lot of opportunity to bump into NBA personnel. You just got to know where to find them. Um, and, you know, it's NBA Summer League. It's G League games. You know, it's not very hard to get to the floor. And 
there's email addresses out there. You know, there's podcasts that people are connected to, right? Like, so if I would tell all the young people out there, like there are, there's low hanging fruit to get engaged with NBA personnel. And if you can't figure that part out, you're probably not going to figure out how to have an NBA career. Um, And then once you, once you engage, once you interact with those people, uh, you know, the, the real, the, the. The, what MBA people are looking for, what, and I think this is in any business, right? As I've learned in other spaces, like we're looking for people who can help us. We're all looking for people who can help our jobs, you know, help add value to, to us. Um, we talked about Paul Silas earlier. I'm telling you, the reason that I think Paul Silas took me from New Orleans to Cleveland um, was because I got the subway order correct every day. I went and got subway sandwiches. And if you can get Subway right every day um, and you maybe go above and beyond, you buy a couple extra cookies or you buy a couple extra bags of chips. What happens is when something needs to, you know, he just learns to trust the leader of that organization at the time, learned to trust that I could get Subway right. And so there's trust built there. And then so the next question, if I get the next question right, which was TVs, we had to go buy a TV at his house. And so we got him. He's like, I want the biggest TV they make. And so we went around and we bought the biggest TV and he learned to trust that. And, and that's how you do it. How you do anything is how you do everything. That's that's right. I'll never forget. There's a great story about that TV too. Paul called me one day. They said it was 73 inches. This thing's 65. Get over here. I run over to the house and immediately I'm like, he's got to be measuring side to side, not corner to corner. And sure enough, I was like, coach, you just got to, he's like, oh, okay, thanks. But again, that's another opportunity, right? Where, where you just are able to continue to build trust. That's a classic mistake of early flat screen purchases. <laughs> we've all made that mistake. We've all made that mistake. <laughs> that's right. Um, uh, so, but that, so that's number one, like you got to find a way to add value. Um, and, to, and, and so the question is, how do you show that you can add value? Yeah. And oftentimes that's just persistence and consistency. And, you know, it's the punctuation in your email. It's the punctuation in your uh, resume. It's not a 15-page resume. It's understanding it's really just a one-page resume that, you, you know, all of us can fit what the highlights on one page. If, if um, And so that's number one. You got to find a way to get in. And you oftentimes find a way to get in by, you know, being respectfully persistent yeah. while showing value or you could have value, could bring value. That's one thing. And then the second part is, you know, how do you have a successful career in it? Like, or what, what, what about the career? Like, I, you know, it's all of us, it, it, it's gotta be about, you have to be passionate about the work. Okay. And, you know, one of the things that you learn in a career is that you oftentimes don't get to pick the people you work for early, right? You just, cause the job is just, show up, right? You just got to take, oh, one of 30, I'll take it, any organization. Yeah. Um, but where you really are fortunate along the way is people create opportunity for you that you have to be prepared to step into. Um, but it's it, if it's about the money or the prestige, you know, if it's about the paycheck, if it's about the position for you, it's it, you can have success in that space, but it's going to be really hard. Right. It's really got to be about passion um, and purpose. And, and if you you are passionate about something and you love it, then you're going to work at it and you'll probably be good at it. And that's where you should focus your energy, not on, you know, the external stuff. Well, what the first part of what you described was the John Wooden story. 
And so, like, everyone loves John Wooden and everyone admires and idolizes John Wooden. How many people go the next step to just be like, I wonder what it would take to just visit the guy at his home? I think actually in a lot of businesses we see this. I've, I've had I've, – yes. this has come up in other interviews. It's like people want these jobs and they admire these people. It's like, you know, you could just show up to where that guy shows up to and you could ask him for a job. The worst thing that's going to happen is he's going to say no. Um, for sure. But for some reason that's hard for people. Did you find that a lot of the emails that you got from college kids looking for jobs when you were with the Hawks was about what you could do for them rather than what they could do for you? Oftentimes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. Like – you know, this is why when, you know, you go back to the conversation with Eric Spolstra and you say, I'm the hardest working guy, you're like, you know, that's not the right answer. And he's like, also like, you don't know where I've been, bro. Exactly right. Yeah. Like, th- th- that says that you're dismissing all everyone else who works hard. Like, I, the, the the best answer in that situation is, listen, I'll do whatever it is that, that you need help with. Yeah. And, I'll, and I'll do my best to do it well. And I'll be open-minded when I don't do things great. And... Um, y- the, the, that that's what you want to hear and and yet you'll be persistent like you'll find a way to to find those people I, i'm of the belief that we can all do whatever it is we want to do right and there's we oftentimes put these barriers in front of us right oh i can't get to that guy no you can get to that guy like you know so the best gms in the nba oftentimes are walking around nba summer league now they've learned it's hard because you get bombarded on the concourse. So they come in different ways, but like you can find another way through. There's got to be a relationship. Someone's going to respond to an email. Um, you know, if you send 30 emails and 28 people don't respond, maybe you don't want to work for those 28 people. Maybe right. You only need one. And then once you build that relationship, you got to find a way to show how you can create value. And I'm doing the same thing at the, right now yeah. in life. Like yeah. it's no different. Like I don't know how I can add value to – NBA TV or to SAP or to Sirius XM NBA radio or to this podcast. Like that was my first question to you, I think was like, how can I be interesting to your audience? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like I don't, but if, you know, I'm also of the belief that, you know, at the end of the day, we're just, we're all just people Yeah. like strip away the money, strip away the title, strip away the prestige. Like it's one of the great lessons. It's actually why we should all go through some like, really difficult moments because when you get a job like an NBA GM job and you get, you know, 400 text messages, right. you know, it makes you feel like, wow, I'm, I'm an impressive, important guy. And then when you no longer have that job and you get like three text messages, <laughs> it's like, you know, you you didn't become 99% less interesting. Right. Well, I think you hit on it and it, it's what's true. Uh, of an NBA front office is, is true in the marketing industry as well as like everyone loves the day when the article comes out that says that you you got the big job as yeah. the chief marketing officer or the chief creative officer. Everyone loves the day that you win the big award. Those days are so few and far between. And especially when that story comes out that says you got the job, that parade is really fun for about 48 hours. And then you have to actually go do the job. That's right. You know, and no one's watching anymore. And yeah. no one's, you know, patting you on the back every time that you, you know. You know, can yeah. I add to that, Please. though? One of the things, when you get that job, the big job, you're saying the chief marketing yeah. officer, CMO or COO or CEO or GM of an NBA team, even assistant GM, right? Yeah. Um, I I will, to all, whoever is listening and, and the young people who are aspiring to be this and the people in the seat who are currently in the seat and probably way more experienced CEOs than us, uh, 
having lived through this time and space, like there's a couple things that that are really helpful tools to manage these jobs. Number one, you got to have someone who cares more about you than you. It's and it's ideal to have that person in your office, right? Typically, someone older, a mentor, yeah. like to help you gain perspective. That's important too. Like have a hobby. You got to have something that you're going to do outside that keeps you motivated, keeps you passionate. And the reason why is because when you go through those really hard times, when we're all been there, where we're like, I don't know that it's worth it. This is not freaking worth it. You can say, you know what? Um, I'm doing it for my family, right? I'm doing it because I got into this, you know, this this game because I love it. Um, and you know what? This is going to help me spend time on my hobby, or I'm going to expand. You know, I'm going to expand my my mind into something larger than what I'm actually dealing with right now. Please, everybody has to work out. Encourage your staff to work out. Be healthy. That is of critical critical importance. And then I'm telling you, everybody has to work on something they're not good at. Have If you're good at everything, it's like, what do they say? Like, if you're the smartest guy in the room, you got to find a new room. Yeah. I'm telling you, man. Like, And it can be working out. Like, if you're not good at something, make it in a workout, something to humble you. Because um, it's just good for all of us to be in an environment where we're struggling. Yeah. One other thought question I had about the, the front office thing is like, what about friendship? You know, over a course of 10 years, you may draft a guy and you watch him get married and have kids. Yeah. How close do you allow yourself to be to a player knowing that business realities may set in yeah. that could, that could uh, yeah. you know, end that relationship uh, abruptly? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great question. Um, it's, I would say this is why a GM needs to be the leader of the franchise. Um. Because what you want to be is the person that communicates those difficult times to those individuals. And, and so all that we want, I think, as people is to be treated respectfully and to be told the truth, right? Yeah. I think those – like if we use those guiding principles, even in the best relationships – if we say stuff to people, we help them understand the situation we're in, why we're making the decisions we're me- making. That's the respect component, and then helping them to understand that you under- that that you respect their family and the challenges of their times. Like that's critical. And I have made this mistake, <laughs> and I've seen it work well. Like I, I've been successful in this environment, but there's there's a couple transactions that still I I struggle with because I was not able to. Or I didn't. I didn't find the way to effectively navigate this component of it. Um, there have been players that gave a great deal to our organization that I was trying to thread the needle between maybe some indecision making in terms of path. Like maybe there was one path where we would keep a player and then another path where we needed to move a player. And because there wasn't certain clarity in our goals, right, what we were trying to achieve, right. then I was trying to walk between the two. And that's why I would say – the person who's in charge of setting that direction needs to be the final decision maker um, because then that final decision maker can can approach that player and say, listen, this is what we're juggling, right? right? We're juggling multiple paths. There's one where you're here. There's one when you're not here. Um, if you're not here, this is what's likely going to happen. If you are here, this is what's likely going to happen. That's what you, that's how you want to handle those situations. Right. Um, Again, I got a couple right and I got a couple wrong. And I actually apologized this year to one of the players uh, that I got it wrong with. 
um, to he and his family at a random church in New York. Crazy. It's crazy. I was just walking down the street, stopped in a church, and he was there with his family. And I was like, this is probably now as good a time as any to tell him I handled it wrong and apologize to his wife. That's amazing. Well, I, I end uh, each one of these episodes with the same two questions. And actually, both of them adapt really well to your world. The first one is, what's the worst response you've ever gotten in a client meeting? I guess the way I would adapt it for you, without naming the players, what is the worst response you ever got to having to break difficult news to a player? Is it just the standard, fuck you? <laughs> or does it does it get more personal than that? Does it get more emotional than that? Mm, no, because... There's a lot of situations where the you're not even communicating with the player directly. As, right. a, as a GM, you're communicating with the agent. Um, and there are times when you're when you are communicating with the player, but typically that those aren't like unexpected. Right. So there's distance that naturally gets created over time right. as you're going through those times of transition. They're ready for the hard conversation by the time they get to you. Or they, they may not like it, but they're just, you know, eventually you can get just beaten down by the reporting that right. stuff's going to happen. And there's some physical distance too, because often the draft and free agency, oftentimes there's, there's a gap in that space. No, actually the, the most difficult environments that I've been in, like had to deal with like... <laughs> An overwhelming sense of emotion have been with staff members. Right. Yeah, where it's been like, I don't have any idea how to handle the situation yeah. right now. And so I'm just going to try to be quiet. And then when you're quiet, then you get, you know, you get beat up for being quiet because then people don't know, you know. Typically, mm -hmm. if people are being quiet, they're either controlling, they're trying to control themselves in the situation or they don't know what to do. In my case, I didn't know what to do. You wish they had an agent that you could have talked to about it <laughs> yeah. instead of dealing with the director. That's right. And then the other question that I always ask is, it's called the one that got away. It's what is that one idea that you've tried to sell and for whatever reason, you could never sell it, but you knew it would be ama an amazing idea You know, if you could just bring it to fruition. I guess the one that got away from you, as we talked about how front office executives' success is tied so closely to the success on the floor and personnel is who's the player that got away, you know, whether it was uh, a draft pick you didn't make or one pick too soon or yeah. a guy you had your eye on and didn't pull the trigger on who's the player that got away. That kind of feels like a sliding, sliding door moment in your career. So what you learn in the draft is there's, you have to identify the player, right? Level of player. This player is going to be good. And then you have to acquire the player, which, and typically one informs the other, right? The better you think the player is going to be, the more aggressive you would be to potentially acquire the player. Right. And so Sabonis, so in my case, like I was the GM, I was the guy running that draft. That one was really hard. But the biggest one for sure is Giannis out at the combo. Um, we did a great deal of work on Giannis. Um, there's going to be more stuff, I think, about this. And, and this is like one of those ridiculous things where like everyone goes out and says like, like, oh, man, I, you know, I thought Michael Jordan was going to be the guy. We almost had Michael Jordan. Like Giannis is certainly that level or close to that level. Um, I mean, we, we did a great deal of work on Giannis. We didn't draft him. He went 15. We got to 16. Um, uh, I, I know why, though, we didn't draft him. Like I, I – I, I, well, one, he went above us. Um, he got picked one pick before One pick before us, okay. yeah. Um, you know, we thought he was going to be very, very good. We had him very high on the board, but we didn't have him one on the board. If we had him one on the – which he should have been one on the board, you know, we that would have informed how aggressive maybe we were to move up, right? right. So, like, 
to sit here and like think that you're patting yourself on the back because, man, we might have had Giannis higher than any other team in the NBA, right? That I don't know that that's true. It might be true. Um, and when I mean on your board, what you do is you rank 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and if you have the 15th pick and the seventh players on the board, that's who you draft, right? Like we had Giannis somewhere right 7, 6, 5 range of that draft in terms of who we thought was going to be the best player. But again, your conviction informs your ability to acquire. Right. And, you know, we were convicted that he was going to be really good. We had, a, we had done a lot of work that he was going to be good. I feel good about the work we did, but I, the lesson learned is we didn't. We still ultimately didn't acquire him, and so that's the lesson that I take from that. Is is one maybe you know we probably still undervaluated him. <laughs> he yeah. should have clearly been one on everyone's board, right. um, and that took a number of years to get over. But that's actually one that I've gotten over, even, even as great as he is and what he means to that franchise, and he's likely going to win championships because he's that great of a player. Incredible interview, too, by the way. I'll never forget that interview. And we interviewed him in Italy when he was playing for the Greek national team and left the country. Left he was Greek like 16 for the first time. or 17 or something. Yeah, yeah, he was. I think he was 18. Yeah, it was an incredible interview. I've heard a lot of good ones that got away. I've heard some really good ideas. I've heard some, some real award winners. I think if I did this for another thousand years, I don't think I'm going to hear a bigger one that got away than Giannis. Yeah, I, I don't know that that's the badge, though, <laughs> <laughs> that you want to wear. No. <laughs> um, the goal is to get these guys. You know, John Hammond drafted him. Uh, you know, Rod Thorne drafted Michael Jordan. Yeah. That's what you want to yeah. be in, in the GM and the, world. And the Blazers missed Michael Jordan and Kevin Durant. And, you right. know, a lot of great executives have missed out on Draymond yeah. Green. I mean, no, it's I just part of it. It, it is – there's a lot of lessons learned and, and all this stuff. That's why, as an executive, it's you always want the good ones to go ahead of you. You want to pick right behind, oh, I never had an opportunity to draft the guy. That's the best you know, career management. Um, but if you really want to propel yourself and uh, be great at it, you got to take the risk. And, and there was a lot of risk in Giannis. People don't, rem- people don't remember that he was like, you know, hard to evaluate, playing at a very low level in Greece. Right. Um, you know, super young, didn't know what position he was. Uh, but that was... That was a big one that we did not that we did not get. Well, you're 41 years old. I think you have a lot more really good picks ahead of you, and uh, I can't wait to see what you do next. You're doing great work on the NBA Network and on Sirius XM, and and I think people are going to be seeing a lot more of you on the NBA Network. I think the more you do, the more they want you to do there, and uh, and it's well earned. And I really enjoyed working with you. Um, on the, the show for which you're a judge, SAP yeah. uh, GM School, which will debut this June. I didn't want to get into it too much because it comes out like two months after this comes out. And um, we don't know how it's going to go. And we don't know how it's going to go. But I, <laughs> based on being on set and seeing you in action, I think it's going to be really good. So, uh, Wes, thank you for making the time, man. This was a different kind of interview than we've done before, but uh, I think people are going to really enjoy it. And I, I know I certainly really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks, man. Okay, that was a little something different for you guys. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much to Wes Wilcox. Thank you, as always, to JSM Music and the executive producer of this podcast, Jeff Fiorello. And a very special thanks to my friends at Acoustec in Atlanta, led by Gopal. They do incredible work for all your audio needs in and around the Atlanta and Southern region. Please reach out to my friends at Acoustec. And until we talk again, wash your hands, be safe, talk soon. Peace.